Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, it is truly a marvelous thing to think of your magnificent, triumphant, sovereign humility. It's a strange, paradoxical idea in the world that we know, in the way of life that we know, in the way that power works in the world that we know. The way that we understand lordship, the way that we understand authority and the exercise of power is so contrary to how you work. And we're grateful that even where we prove unfaithful, even where your church proves unfaithful, you remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. And if it means that you will intervene through dreams and visions to cause the people that you have created and that you love as your image bearers to, to have a, a, an awakening in their hearts and minds, a true sight of the glorious Messiah, we praise you that you work in such an amazing way. It shows us that though you use us and though you have determined to use ambassadors in the cause of your gospel, that you are able to act quite apart from us. And we rejoice in that. And even in the things we've considered today, Father, I pray that it is a fresh reminder that for all that we see going on around us and all that discourages us and all that sometimes perhaps even makes us question whether you are still at work, whether you are still mindful of your determination and your intent to build your kingdom, we see that not in the whirlwind, not in the fire, not in the, the mighty earthquake, but in the still small voice, you continue to do your work. And I pray that we would be a mindful people, that we would be a faithful people, that we would continue to bind ourselves to your mind, to your heart, and that we would truly be servants of your gospel as you continue to work in the administering of the fullness of the times towards that goal of summing up everything in the creation in Christ our Lord. May our praise, may our worship be directed to you in that way, and may we find joy and peace, and all hope in believing. Continue to attend us by your Spirit as, in our, as we continue our worship, and we pray that you will bear fruit in the heart and the mind of each one present today, and really throughout the world as your people gather in your name to sing your praises. All these things, Father, we lay before you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.
Well, as we come to the end of Hebrews 11, uh, the writer has kind of moved from specific examples and examples that follow through the path of the salvation history. He concludes in a very general way, just speaking of the prophets. And by that, I, th- I think he's including both what we would call the writing prophets and the non-writing prophets. Uh, we have the prophets that we associate with the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But we also have uh, in the scriptures shown to us many prof- prophets and prophetic servants who didn't contribute any scriptural content, uh, men like Elijah, men like Elisha. But he speaks of the prophets in general in terms of their faith and how it bore its own fruitfulness. And I think also other anonymous individuals. If you follow through the very end of the chapter, there are even unnamed, unidentified individuals, simply people who are noted for their faith. Not because of who they were or their named or anything significant that we would point to, but people whose names are not even known to us who are yet faithful, whom God knows, and who the writer of Hebrews can say, these faithful all live their lives in a way that bore fruit. And we've seen even as we come to the end of this chapter that that fruitfulness had both a positive and a negative dimension, if we want to think of it that way. These all, and that takes us all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, all of these individuals, their faith bore the fruit of great triumph, but also great suffering. Suffering and triumph together. As he says, and we'll go ahead and read this last section, <clears throat> there, it involved death, it involved uh, physical suffering, imprisonment, injustice, slander, every kind of suffering that can be imagined. And yet there was a triumph in the midst of that as well. And so the writer says, uh, verse 32, we'll back up to that point and finish out Uh, through the end of the chapter. He says, What more then shall I say? For time would fail me if I were to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, Samuel, and the prophets, all of whom by faith conquer kingdoms, not each one of them, but, but together these are things that characterized the fruitfulness of their faith. Men who conquered kingdoms performed Acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. People who were, had died and were brought back to life, but others were tortured, not accepting their release from their torture in order that they might obtain a better resurrection, the resurrection that would come at the last day, dying in faith. And others experienced mocking, scourging, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. These were people of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. 
And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Approved by God and yet not receiving what was promised. Because God had foreseen in the sense of of established and set in place, prepared something better pertaining to us, so that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So I want to round all of this out today and kind of just bring some summary observations to bear, and I really want to treat this in a very simple way, which may think you're entering an alternate universe, but you aren't. I do want to try to keep this very simple, to tie this all up in a way that we can walk away from Hebrews 11 and say, okay, so what? What do we do with this? What do we do with this? And as I've said, Hebrews 11 is really, um, in, in the whole of the book, but Hebrews 11 fits into the writer's intent pastorally to his readers. The people to whom he's writing are people whose faith and faithfulness has come at a cost. It's involved great suffering. It's involved the loss of their community, the loss of their family in a certain sense. As they have embraced Jesus as the Messiah, it has cost them their relationship with their Jewish countrymen. Even the, the temptation in the negative sense of being challenged as to whether perhaps they've actually missed it in embracing Jesus as Messiah, have they actually wandered away from Israel's God? Have they actually departed from the true faith in the name of being faithful followers of Israel's God? And that was what was being presented to them by their countrymen, as well as the physical uh, suffering of seizing of property and imprisonment and, I'm sure, beatings and other sorts of things being pressed against them, tribulations to, in a sense, cause these people to question their newfound faith in the Messiah and step back from that and perhaps even return to the Judaism that they had departed from. That's the historical context in which the writer is writing. This is an eminently pastoral epistle. And by taking them back through a rehearsal of their own Israelite history, that by which they defined themselves, understood themselves, situated themselves in relation to God, they were able to see that their suffering was not unique to them. They could look back over the lives of all of these who the the writer puts in front of them and see that suffering is the common lot and has always been the common lot of God's faithful people. It is not something strange, it is not something unusual, and it is not something incidental in the sense that it's just coincidence or it's arbitrary or it just happens. But actually, the triumphal side of faith, the triumphal fruit of faith, as I've said so many times, he wants them to see that that is situated within and and really very much bound up in their suffering. It's not some triumph and some suffering, but the triumph itself depends upon and is situated within this suffering in all of its various forms. 
And here's the fundamental point. Faithfulness always brings suffering. Now, I'm not talking about disease or, uh, you know, loss of our job, per se, or, uh, you know, a spouse dying or something. I'm not talking about that, per se. But faithfulness always brings suffering, and we're going to see that to be the case. And what that means, then, is suffering is essential to the triumph of faith. If faithfulness brings suffering, then there is no such thing as the triumph of faith, the triumphalism of faithfulness that is separated from suffering. They always go together. But also beyond that, suffering is, in a very real way, the lens through which we understand what it means for faith to triumph. And that may not seem like a big deal, but, you know, faith is one of those Christian terms. It's a part of our Christian vocabulary. But like so many things, we don't often stop and think about what that really means, We talk about faith, and Christians have faith, and faith is a part of the Christian life. But what is faith? What does that really mean? What does that look like? And we've been exploring that through this chapter. But I would argue that in order to really understand the dynamics of faith, and so also the way in which faith is is a triumphal thing, ways in which we triumph in faith, we have to look at that through this lens of suffering. And hopefully, as we work through this, uh, that will become more obvious to us. But we live in a time, I think, in our culture where we often think of the triumph that comes to faith as the overcoming of suffering or difficulty. Probably the most caricatured way we think about it is is the various forms of this thing that maybe we call... um, the word of faith movement or, or whatever, where if, if I believe something enough, then it's going to happen for me. It's really just an, it's, it's the fact of human religion being magic. Human religion in all of its forms is magic. People recognize in, instinctively that there are powers out there, whatever we call them. Whether we deify them, whether we make them personal, there are powers and forces out there. And if we can use the right mechanisms and means to interface with those powers, we can make them amenable to us. We can make them aware of us. We can make them useful to us. That's what magic is all about. And whether it's, you know, throwing the virgin in the volcano to make the rains come and the crops grow, or whether it's reading my Bible every day in the expectation that it's going to go well with me in my life that I live, or giving my money to a religious organization or whatever. And we say, well, we don't really think that way. And I've used this example many times with you. When, if you were driving down the road in a driving rainstorm and you get a blowout, and now you've got to get out of the car and you've got to deal with, you know, this, this unpleasant situation. We may not say it verbally, but in our head it's like, God, how could you do this to me? And implicit in that is the idea, I don't deserve this because I do X, Y, Z. I'm a faithful person, Right? 
And so we, all, we live in a world that operates according to tit for tat. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And religion operates on the same premise. If I do something good for the deity or these powers, if I, apl- if I apply or appeal to them in the right sort of way, then it will go well with me. I will get from them what I seek. And so when we think about faith and how faith triumphs, we think about faith as a kind of mechanism that ultimately secures for us what we seek. And each person defines what he seeks, you know, himself and at a given point in time. What we believe faith will bring to us varies as we go through our lives. But nonetheless, we have a sense of what faith and faithfulness will obtain for us. So we don't think of suffering and faith in the way that the scripture wants us to think about it. And that's what I I hope to flesh out a little bit. Uh, today, just in bringing this together, as I say, hopefully in, in a simple way that we can all get our, our arms around it. So I want to treat this just under two heads, the nature and the pattern of faith. What does this really look like? And then what is the orientation of faith? What is the orientation of faith? If faith is the, if faith gives substance to what we can't see, if faith, in a sense, brings what doesn't yet exist into the present, then what is the orientation that faith has? What is it really looking to? Well, the first thing with respect to the nature and the pattern of faith, it's something I've said several times and and ought to be obvious to us. Probably most Christians would agree with this. Faith has God as its object. And we would all say yes and amen. But often what that means when we say faith has God as its object is that God is the one that we appeal to in faith to obtain the things that we seek. In other words, God is the means to an end, not the end itself. The other thing that I've said and ought to be obvious to us, but like the fish in water, we don't know we're wet is that when we say faith has God as its object, it it really forces us or should force us to answer the question, which God? God is just a symbolic, it's a sounds symbol, right? Or a written symbol, G-O-D. What is that? What does that mean? Who is this God? If, If we say, yes, I believe in God, I trust in God, well, it begs the question, what? Who is this God? What God do you trust? How do you know? And who we believe this God to be will very much affect what it means to have him as the object of our faith and what we even are faithful with respect to him concerning. Well, as I've said also so many times, faith is directed towards the God who actually is. Okay, how do we know this God who actually is? Well, he's the God who has made himself known through his words and his works. The God who speaks, the God who does according to his word, and then the God who speaks beyond those works in order to interpret those works for us. The scriptures are nothing but the record of the words and the works of God. If we want to say literarily, how is it broken out? It's narrative and commentary. It's story and commentary. 
God does something, God interprets it. He does something, he interprets it. Narrative, commentary, narrative, commentary. And this God who has made himself known through what he says and what he does, all of that self-revelation has converged in the person of Jesus himself. Again, I've said so many times, the New Testament, from the Bible standpoint, the scriptures, in the most basic sense, are Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. When the apostles and others went around proclaiming the Messiah from the scriptures, they were proclaiming Jesus as Messiah from Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament. So we say, okay, well, what is the New Testament? It's simply the inspired witness to how Jesus of Nazareth is the one in whom and through whom all of the scriptures are fulfilled. The New Testament shows us the meaning of the Old Testament in the light of the person and the work of Jesus. That's how the gospel accounts themselves are constructed. They are drawing from the Old Testament Israelite history and the Old Testament record and showing how these things are yes and amen in this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one promised by God. And the implications of the person in the work of Jesus, what has come, what it really looks like and means that God has fulfilled all of these things he said he was going to do. So the New Testament is, if you will, the divine commentary on the scriptures that have Jesus at the center. This is why we really can't begin to teach people about who Jesus is with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Because those guys would say, hey, you can't start with me because I'm starting back here. At the very least, if we start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're going to be all the time going back and, and saturating ourselves in the Old Testament scriptures because that's what they're doing. This was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. Even the way you know, uh, in which Jesus is presented as the embodiment of, Jesus, uh, of uh, Israel's life and relationship with God. So I don't want to belabor all of that except just to say again, if faith has God as its object, how do we know that our faith is directed towards the true God and not some figment of our imagination? Because everybody has some concept of G-O-D. And because there are really only two gods, there's the true God and then there's the God that is an extrapolation of our own consciousness and our own sense of ourselves. This is what idolatry is, is that we are our own God. There's really only two gods. Unless we are bound over to the God who really is, we are simply worshiping ourselves in the name of this entity called G-O-D. Well, how do we know who that God is? We know who he is in Jesus, the Messiah, as the scriptures unfold him. This shows us how faith is absolutely dependent on scriptural understanding. 
Faith, is, faith depends on knowing the God of the scriptures, but as he is known in the Messiah of the scriptures. I think I've mentioned this before. I know I have in private conversations to some of you, but I've looked at, uh, in past times for various reasons at this question of why do you know, someone who would be like an apostle Paul Orthodox, devout, believing Jews who really do believe the scriptures and who do believe that God has promised a personal Messiah. A lot of Jews don't. Messiah is a, is, is a metaphor for a glorious future age or, you know, some, sometimes there's no messianic sense with certain Jewish traditions. But among Jews who believe the scriptures, who believe in the, the uh, messianic hope, why, why don't they see in Jesus the, the Messiah of the scriptures? And what I found consistently, you know, whether in interviews with rabbis or whatever, is this common thread. The Jesus of Christianity doesn't in any way fit into the scriptural picture of the Messiah. And they will tell you how the Messiah promised in the scriptures is a son of David who will come and who will destroy, you know, the subjugating power that has taken God's people captive. And he will liberate them and he will bring in forgiveness and renewal of the covenant and establish God's kingdom and reestablish God's dwelling place such that Yahweh will return to Zion and dwell in his temple. And through the Messiah, he will reign over all the nations of the earth. There's the scriptural portrait of the Messiah. And what they see in Jesus of Nazareth is, in a sense, a religious avatar who is the leader of a private, personal religion by which people get to go to heaven when they die. And my point in saying all of that is that without denying that, you know, God works in this thing of illumining our minds and causing the scales to fall away, we as the Christian community are largely responsible for Jewish unbelief. Because the Jesus that we communicate is not the Jesus of the scriptures. And I'm not denying the fact of personal salvation. I'm not denying the fact of, of uh, you know, our, our spirit's going to be with the Lord when we die. But we've reframed these things in a way where we're basically promoting a personal, private religion whose goal is to get us into a happy place called heaven. And that does not connect or comport with the scriptural presentation of the Messiah and God's intent in the Messiah. So we have fabricated a false Jesus who Jewish people cannot connect with the messianic figure presented in the scriptures. We have to have a scripturally grounded faith that knows the God who is and and knows how that God is in fact known and revealed, fully disclosed in the Messiah that the scriptures set forth. So our faith has to be tied, first of all, to a right knowledge of the true God. The second piece of this, in terms of nature and pattern of faith, is the relationship between faith and faithfulness. 
And, and I would argue that really they're the same thing. We tend to say faith is what you believe, faithfulness is what you do, but you can't really separate them. There's a sense in which there is an intellect or a cognitive component and, and an active component, if you will, but they're really tied together. In other words, our priorities, a, a person's priorities, a person's orientation, a person's general practice and, and, and scheme of life will accord with things that that person holds as a matter of sincere conviction. You can know what a person truly holds as a matter of sincere conviction by the orientation of that person's life. This is why Paul uses this expression, and it's actually his bookend in the book of Romans, which is very appropriate, the obedience of faith. See, we've tended to want to again separate those things and say, okay, you have to believe, you believe in Jesus, now you do this thing called obedience, we're justified by faith, but now we're sanctified by the things that, that we do. Okay, now we've got to get about this business of holy living or whatever. Paul has this phrase, the obedience of faith, and I think he's relating them in, in an appositional or a positive way. The obedience that is faith. The obedience that is faith. He said that was the burden of his gospel is that the Gentiles themselves would become a part of this thing called the obedience of faith. And we're, we're so, you know, and this really comes through the medieval period in the Reformation, the, this, this insistence on really keeping faith and works separate because we don't want to bring works into our salvation. That was what the Roman Catholics did. We have to be careful about that, and so we have to make sure that we put works in the category, the bucket that's called sanctification, and we keep faith over here on the side that's called justification. We're made right with God simply by faith, but now we do this thing of being obedient once we are saved. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus, right? We want to separate those things in our understanding, and yet you really can't. If you found yourself, another common illustration I use a lot, if you found yourself waking up in your car on the railroad tracks because you, you, know, you, you come to your senses, you've fallen asleep, and you, you see the light coming, it's at night, and you feel the tracks roaming, and you know this freight train's closing in on you, you're, you're going to immediately try to start the car, right? And if you can't start the car, you're going to open the door and get out of the car and get out of the way. Well, have you done a work? All you've done is you've just, you've just responded naturally, instinctively, instantaneously to the conviction that you hold very you know, firmly as true and sure. You haven't done anything except just what Paul would call the obedience that is faith. You have simply acted upon what you hold as a matter of conviction. And that's how faith and faithfulness go together. But it's because of that dynamic of the obedience that is faith, that's the reason that faith is always attended with tribulation and suffering. 
Now, that doesn't mean that our own sin, our own failures, our own foolishness, that doesn't mean that that those things don't contribute to our suffering. They do. We do a lot of foolish things. We, we, you know, we, our sin contributes to our suffering. But what we call those sinful or fail, failing things that, that contribute to our suffering, that's not really the root essence of suffering as the scripture understands it. Suffering derives from, in the first instance, suffering derives from and is proportional to our faithfulness. It derives from our faithfulness, and it's proportional to our faithfulness. Hence, Jesus, the epitomizing faithful man, suffered immensely, profoundly, extensively, yet without sin. The great psychological portrait of him in the Old Testament scriptures of the Messiah is a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief, a man whose life would be marked by suffering. As true man, he was truly faithful man and therefore truly suffering man. That's the sense in which our suffering due to faithfulness is itself of the nature of triumph. See, we say suffering and triumph Get overcome the suffering, pass beyond the suffering, now triumph. The scripture would say the suffering itself is a dimension of our triumph. The suffering itself is a dimension of our triumph. Because the suffering proceeds out of this thing called faith and faithfulness. And maybe a good way to think about it is that if, if we even think of this idea of tribulation, remember Paul, as he goes, his first missionary journey, he goes into Pisidian Antioch, up into Asia Minor, like uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. then he comes back, he backtracks, he comes back through those same areas where he had proclaimed Christ and people had come to faith. So maybe a year, year or two later, And as he comes back through, Luke records in Acts that Paul was encouraging and strengthening the saints, the churches. How did he encourage and strengthen them? It's through much tribulation that we will finally inherit the kingdom of God in the full sense. Our destiny in God's kingdom is through much tribulation. And that idea of thalipsis, it really carries the idea of a pressure pressed against us. It's not so much something that happens inside of us, it's something that comes from outside of us. Faithfulness and suffering always go together in the sense that if you can think about a salmon that that is swimming upstream to spawn It's a good kind of illustration of the Christian life because from the minute that that fish embarks on that journey, it's being pressed against. If it's moving, it's feeling pressure. And it never can rest, it never can stop. It presses and presses and presses and presses towards the goal, confronting, meeting, every obstacle, the constant pressure of the flow of the the current until it finally reaches its resting place and it dies. 
But the point is the only way that that salmon can relieve itself of tribulation, the pressing against itself, is to allow itself to drift with the current. When it drifts with the current, it has no sense of pressure. It'd be like, you know, us floating down a stream. If your eyes are closed and you're floating, you have no awareness of motion. As far as you can tell, you're just in a, in a pool of water static. But the minute that you divert yourself at all from the flow of that water, you feel this thing pressing against you. Faithfulness brings tribulation because faithfulness means swimming against the current. And the only way to get rid of or to minimize that pressing against us is to, in a certain sense, compromise, to go with the flow, to use our expression. So there's a sense in which to, again, use that illustration of the salmon swimming upstream. The suffering is nonstop. It's exhausting, and it ends in death. And yet that very progress in the journey, that very steadfastness is itself triumph, right? The triumph is in the suffering. So then lastly, what I want to talk about briefly is the orientation of faith. Remember, again, the writer began by saying faith is the assurance of things hoped for, basically the giving substance to that which we hope for. It is the conviction of things not seen, the making present or real what we can't see with our eyes. That tells us that faith has a future orientation, It brings into the present and gives substance what doesn't meet our eyes, but what is hoped for, what is assured. It has a future orientation, but not the future that we presume or we desire. Once again, faith becomes like Everything in the natural way of thinking, faith becomes a mechanism, a talisman, a mechanism of magic. Faith is the way to achieve the outcome we seek. Faith is the way to realize our expectations. This is why when things don't go the way that we want them to go, we conclude God doesn't exist or God isn't good or God doesn't care about me. Because if he existed, and he were good, and he were listening to me, and he knew what's what, then it would look this way. So faith is the way in which we seek to manipulate this being that we call God to realize the outcomes that we seek. And when it doesn't look that way, Then we go away, the parable of the soils. There are many who receive the word with joy. But when trouble or trial or difficulties or the pressures of the world, the cares of the world, the love of riches, when those things press in, it causes the seed to become unfruitful and they go away sad. And we've all known people like that. 
people, and, and in many ways, it's often preachers or teachers' fault who lead people to believe that if you'll just come to Jesus, he'll give you an abundant life. And people have an expectation of what this is going to mean. If I sign up for Jesus, what's that going to look like for me? Fill in the blank, abundant life. That's a pretty nebulous idea. I can kind of make that be whatever I want. And it didn't work out that way. God gypped me. Or maybe he doesn't exist at all. Faith is future-oriented, but it, is, it looks to, it brings into the present, it lays hold of and brings into the present that which God has ordained and pledged. If you look at all of these examples of faith, the writer again moves through the whole of the salvation history, and in each case, with each person, their faith is believing God concerning what God has promised to do and where they are and fit into that process. It's not about personal expectations, personal outcomes, personal goals, what I seek, what I want, what it ought to be for my life. Even I'm not saying all of that is bad uh, in, inherently, but faith is laying hold of what God has pledged, what God is doing, what God has ordained. That's what it means when we say that faith has God as its object. The God who is known in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, well, what does that mean? What has Jesus done? What has he set in place? What is, what is this going toward? That's what our faith is tied to. So faith is future-oriented, but it also is very much set in time. What I mean by that is because God is progressively working out the future that he ordained, faith in every generation, in every era, is the same sort, but it has different content, different fullness. In other words, Jesus said of Abraham, Abraham is the one who the New Testament most closely connects all believing people with as the father of faith, right? We all have a faith of the same sort as Abraham, and yet what did Jesus say of Abraham? He saw my day. Abraham didn't have faith in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus did not exist until he was born. And the messianic hope of the Old Testament faithful, their faith in this God was dependent upon, the the content of their faith was dependent upon what God had made known at that point in time. So Abraham's faith did not have the same content that ours does. David's faith had a greater content than Abraham's did. Abraham had a sense that this God was going to do this marvelous work in connection with a royal seed, but in the Davidic covenant and God's relationship with David, that idea became more developed. So as you move through the salvation history, it's like painting a portrait again. Each brush stroke presupposes the previous ones and adds to the portrait. But it's not till it's done that you can really see what it's going to be like. And so each step of the process, there's 
faith that can see in some sort of sense where this is going, but it can't be fully seen until you get to the end. In the preparatory era, the era leading up to the coming of Jesus the Messiah, their faith was oriented towards this God who had promised a kingdom. That's what my point with, the, with Jewish individuals earlier. They're deriving their sense of what God has promised from their own scriptures. God will arise. He will deal with this problem of exile. A world that is estranged from him because of the curse. He will arise. He will put all things right. He will reestablish his presence in the midst of his people. And through them, he will rule over the whole world. This imagery that we saw throughout the book of Zechariah when we studied through it. Their faith was directed towards that day when God would arise and he would forgive and he would restore and renew the covenant and he would establish his kingdom and take his place in the midst of his tabernacle again, his sanctuary in the midst of his people. That kingdom that he'd pledged, disclosed, built the case for, laid the foundation for, increasingly painted the portrait of through that whole preparatory period. We who are on this side of Christ's coming and the Christ event, our faith looks to the consummating of that kingdom. It too is future-oriented, It still is bound up in this God who has revealed and worked towards an ultimate design for all things, what Paul calls the summing up of everything in the creation in Jesus himself, so that God will be all in all. We, too, live in hope of that. My point in saying that is that the point point then is all of God's faithful people die in faith. They all die in faith. The people that the writer of Hebrews is talking about died in faith without receiving what was promised. We die in faith having received what was promised, but in the expectation of the fullness to come. Paul says the, inner, the outer man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. We do not look on what is seen, but what is unseen. We don't lose heart. We press on. We press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. We too have to live in faith. But we, on this side of Christ's coming, have less excuse for our unfaithfulness. Because we live in the fullness of the times. We have obtained what God foresaw concerning us and what the previous faithful died in the hope of. That's verse 40. Put 39 in with it. All these, all these who preceded the coming of the Messiah, though God approved them, approved their faith, they didn't receive what was promised. They didn't live to see this great messianic triumph. Because God had foreseen or marked out in advance something better that would pertain to us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect, complete. They died 
awaiting the completion that would come when they were made complete together with us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Well, this is where the writer's going to go in chapter 12. This is the implication. If all of these were steadfast in faith in the context of their suffering and the challenges of their lives, seeing only, like, you know, into the fog... Where's our excuse for unfaithfulness when we actually are recipients of that which they hoped in? And it's not just that we can look back to the historical event of Messiah's coming. We are actually living into his triumph. We share in his resurrection life. We share in the life and the power of his spirit. Where is the excuse for our unfaithfulness? So to conclude then, faithfulness, rightly understood, is fundamental to our conformity to Christ. If you say, okay, I'm a Christian, okay, what does that mean? What does it entail? Where is it going? I'm a Christian. What does that mean? Many people would say, I'm saved. Okay, well, what does that mean? I'm forgiven. Okay, well, what is, well, then what does that mean? Why does that matter? Well, that means that I get to go to heaven when I die. Okay, what else? Well, that's kind of it. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Well, the scriptures would say that this idea of being a Christian means that we are sharers by the Spirit of God in the very life of the Messiah himself, such that he is our life, right? That's what the Lord's table is all about. Jesus is our life. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I do live, but not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. His triumph is my triumph. His resurrection is my resurrection. His life is my life. And so the goal of this thing of being a Christian is conformity to Christ, Christiformity, being transformed fully into his image and likeness. And faithfulness Faithfulness is fundamental to that conformity because Jesus was the preeminently faithful man. So faithfulness then is simply the life of faith. Faithfulness is what faith is. It is not what we do, it is who we are. Faithfulness is not what we do in the first instance, it is who we are. And our faithfulness is grounded in God's faithfulness. How is God faithful? He has done this mighty work of deliverance and renewal and in gathering that he promised. And as those who are partakers in that faithful work of God, our faithfulness is grounded in that. We are faithful in and because of his very faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is his commitment to his purposes, not his commitment to us per se and our interests and our designs, his commitment to his purposes. I've said many times that this concept of God's righteousness speaks not so much to his moral condition, but to his integrity, his faithfulness. He keeps his word. He does what he says. He is true. 
God is true. His faithfulness is his commitment to his purposes, so therefore our faithfulness is our alignment with his purposes. If we say it's important, what is, a great, what is uh, uh, you know, faithfulness is this important Christian ethic? Christians are to be faithful people. Well, what does that look like? What does it mean to be faithful? It means to have our own minds and understanding and will and priorities aligned with God. His purposes are our purposes. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. When you observe me, you see what the Father is doing. You see what the Father is saying. In me, you see the Father. We say, yeah, but that's because Jesus was divine. No, he's talking about his authentic human life of being one with his Father. What a son really looks like, a son of the Father. And many of you have heard me say, That's our destiny. When this is all said and done for us, we will be able to say truthfully, when you see me, you see the Father. When you see me, you see the Father. Because a son is of the Father. And when we are fully conformed to the likeness of the true image son, then we will be image children in that same way. And what a remarkable thing to be able to say See me? You don't see me as me. You see the Father. You see the one of whom I am the express image and likeness. Faithfulness is our aligning ourselves with that understanding, that purpose, that intentionality. That's how faithfulness isn't just some arbitrary thing of finding some commandments to keep or being a good person or reading my, you know, whatever. It's not just a bunch of things that kind of float out there that we think are important. It's really the intentionality of a life that is yoked with God in the purposes and the work of, that he is himself is doing. And that's true for each of us in our, in our own generation, Faithfulness, you can't quantify it and say it looks like these six things. Because each of us are woven in our time, our circumstance, as instruments of God outworking his purpose. And our faithfulness is our fidelity to that purpose as it pertains to us in our own generation. But that means that faithfulness is objective. It's not subjective. It's informed. It's not arbitrary and ethereal out there in space somewhere. And it's also, to use a big word, eschatological. Eschatology doesn't mean who's the Antichrist, when's the tribulation coming. Eschatology speaks to the fact that this God has an intent and a purpose towards which he's working. There is a design, there is an end, there is a completion, there is a purpose. And and eschatology comes first in the theological disciplines. We put it at the end of theology books because we say it's about the end times, but it's really not. It's first and foremost the way, it's it's in knowing that there is a purpose for all things that we can talk about who is God and what is sin and who is Jesus and what is this and all of these arenas of theology, right? They're all grounded and defined by the fact of a God who has a purpose, 
a God who has a design. Faithfulness operates in view of God's future. We have to know what it is that he's doing in order to be faithful in our generation. And then just finally, how does this thing of suffering work out? How how do we understand this thing of suffering? Like I said, it can be disease. It can be, you know, some unforeseen loss or whatever. But there's a sense in which the suffering in the way that the scripture understands it, and I'm speaking of it, is inherent to life as we live it. It really is fundamentally, it derives from the overlap and the the conflict, the contradiction between the old creation and new creation. Both exist at the same time. Christians, as I often say, are the only people that have to live in two worlds at the same time. We walk out our days in this world that still operates according to the curse, but as those whose citizenship is in heaven. And it doesn't mean we're going to heaven. It means that we we are defined by this heavenly realm that God inhabits. Just like if you were an American citizen living in Yugoslavia. We walk out our days in this world, but as those who've been raised up in the Messiah and are seated in the heavenly realm in him. And there is a conflict, a contradiction that exists between the old creation and new creation. That's why Paul says, put off the old self corrupted in its fundamental desires and perceptions and put on the new self that has already been created in God in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. You died, your lives are hidden with Christ in God. So we have to walk out our days inhabiting a realm of human existence in relation to God that we don't see manifest on the ground in front of us. That fundamental dynamic is what creates this perpetuity of suffering. There are times when there's money. There's times when there's no money. There's times when relationships are good. There's times when relationships are bad. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I'm talking about the fundamental struggle of being those who are raised up in the Messiah, those who are doing human life in a different way in a world that is doing it in its own way, those who are, again, swimming against the current in all of the various ways. So we suffer as a perpetual feature of our lives because of this principle of contrariness or contradiction. This is what the idea of tribulation is all about, being pressed, 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 pressed. We suffer in sorrow. Sorrow is a perpetual feature of our existence in Christ. doesn't mean that we're always on the floor, you know, crying or whatever, But Paul said, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Jesus was defined as the man of sorrows. Sorrow in what sense? Paul sorrowed over the people that he loved. He sorrowed over those that he loved, that he longed that they would come to know the Messiah. He he sorrowed over his Jewish countrymen. 
He sorrowed in the context of his own ministration with other Christians. The struggle of, again, just the imperfections of the world, the contrariness of the world, contrariness in the church, contrariness among Christians. All of the ways in which things are not what they ought to be produces a continual sorrow. Even a sorrow concerning himself. You know, Peter talks about this inward sorrow that is both because of unjust suffering, but also because of this thing of a longing. You know, Paul in Romans 8. We suffer in longing. Just like the creation is groaning, it's waiting, it's longing, it has this angst, it's, it's groaning, waiting for the day when there will be the full revealing of the sons of God in the resurrection of the last day. And in that day, the creation itself will enter into its own renewal in the redemption that has come in the Messiah, Romans 8. And as the creation groans and groans, and so he says, we groan within ourselves because we too are longing for that day. We're not longing to be rid of this body and go off to heaven. We're longing for the resurrection of the last day and the renewal of all things. How many of our hymns are oriented towards flying away off to heaven? And that's not what the scripture holds for us as that which we're hoping in. It's a new heavens, a new earth, a renewed creation where all things are as God intended them to be, and at the center of it are his human creatures who are his image children, administering his loving, wise stewardship and lordship over the works of his hands. Our destiny is very much earthly in that sense. Suffering in sorrow, suffering in longing, and suffering in service. This is my my close with you, but one of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians chapter, well, really, I mean the whole epistle, but Paul's, just his general angst and his sense of, uh, you know, the the struggle that he had with the Corinthians and his longing for them and, and, and all of the agony that Paul endured in this struggle to be faithful. But in chapter four, and I just want to read this and then, then we will pray. He says, Having, since we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. He's saying this is a ministry that all things being equal would cause us to lose heart. This ain't easy. But we have renounced the things that are hidden because of shame. We don't walk in craftiness. We don't adulterate the word of God. Think of all the pragmatics that goes on in, the, in, in our culture, in the world, in the name of ministering the gospel. Rather, by the manifestation of truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in God's sight. Maybe not in that person's sight, but in God's sight. And if indeed, and it's true often, our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Because, see, we don't preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, as King, and ourselves as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. This isn't about us except that we proclaim ourselves to be your bondservants for his sake. 
For the God who said light shall shine out of darkness, the God of creation is the God of recreation, the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, God's own glory that is in the face of the Messiah. But we have this treasure, this surpassing glorious treasure in earthen vessels in order that the greatness, the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God, not from ourselves. Is there power in this gospel? Is there power in this renewal? Yes, but it's God's power in and through earthen vessels. With respect to us, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We always are bearing about in our physical mortal bodies the dying of Jesus. His life that was the life of dying, we bear in us as sharers in him. As in order that and in view of the fact that the life of Jesus is also being manifest in our bodies. We who live are constantly, not once in a while, continually delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so death works in us in order that life would work in you. Having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, we also speak to you, Corinthians, out of our confidence We don't speak to you this way because we see all of this good fruit in you, because we see all of this maturity in you. You're immature, you're sinful, you're foolish. You misuse the gifts, you misuse one another, you you posture, you do all of it. You know, we don't say these things because of what we see in you, but because of what we believe. And here's what we believe, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us also with him in the bodily resurrection of the last day and present us together with you. Our confidence is not in you, but in the God who has promised. And therefore we labor. For all things are for your sake, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. And so we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, and all the more as we strive in the cause of this kingdom, our inner man is being renewed day by day. So that actually it's light and momentary affliction that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So that we do not look at what is seen, but what is unseen. We live by faith. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. That's what faithfulness looks like. Father, these are profound things, and yet they are also profoundly simple. And I pray that you would help us to grow with respect to these things in our understanding and in our practice. It's very easy for us to throw jargon around and to uh, you know, use terminology and, and say the right things in the right time to the right people. But do we really know and are we really committed to this thing of faithfulness, to laboring within, with everything inside of us by the power of your spirit to see every person, including ourselves, presented complete in Christ. 
do we really seek to see each one attain to the whole measure of the fullness of the stature that belongs to Christ, to see everyone grow up fully in him. I pray that it is so, and I pray that this perspective helps us to even uh, better understand the circumstances of our lives, that even if we could perfectly manage all of the things of our lives, we would still suffer in tribulation if we are going to be faithful people. Jesus said that we would be blessed. As he spoke to his disciples and his followers of his kingdom, he said, you are blessed. When men revile you, when they persecute you, when they speak all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward with the Father in the heavenly realm. And recognize this is the way that they treated the prophets who were before you. Father, I pray that we would be committed to being a faithful people, a wise people, a discerning people, an intentional people, a purposeful people. A people who have yoked ourselves to your purpose and your mind and your work in this world. You don't depend on us, but you have given us the privilege privilege of being fellow workers together together with you by your spirit. What a glorious heritage of faith. What a glorious multitude of people whose shoulders we stand upon. And yet they cannot be faithful for us. We must prove faithful in our own generation. And may we strive in order to hear those words, well done, good, and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Father, we don't even just seek to endure in order to go off to a heavenly home, but we seek to make a difference in this world because this is the world that you love, that you created, that you ordained for an eternal destiny in a renewal, a consummative glory. And may we be laborers unto that end, not seeking to escape from this world, but to be instruments in your hand for its good in view of your purposes for it. All of these things, Father, we pray that you would transform our minds, that you would renew us by the transforming of our minds, and that in that way we would truly grow up in Christ and be faithful to our calling to be Christians in the world. I pray that you would make these things that that I've spoken of understandable, comprehensible, and effectual in the heart and mind of each one here today, however old, however young, however long we've walked with you. May they bear their fruit for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.